Thank you so much, worship team, for casting our vision to the awe and wonder of God. Hi, my name's John, and I'm very, very privileged to be an elder here. But uh, we, we have a, wow, a fantastic passage that we're going to be looking at this morning, and it is in-depth. And uh, I just want to share with you some of the amazing truths that have, uh, I believe God has shown me. So let me start with a question. When's the first time in your life that you realized that Christians could disagree? <laughs> in your diapers. <laughs> well, for me, it uh, actually was uh, about grade five. Um, I was 10 years old and uh, went to a new school and I was delighted, delighted to find out that there were some Christian classmates there. I grew up in a loving, wonderful Christian home. But in terms of Christian behavior, there were six indicators that our church and our family really drilled in. Good Christians do not swear, they don't take tobacco, they don't drink, they don't uh, go to movies, they don't dance, and they certainly do not do any physical activity on Sunday because Sunday was a day of rest. So, uh, now to be fair, my childhood Bible teaching was much more uh, broad than that. But the saying was, don't drink, don't smoke, no physical activity on Sunday, don't chew, and don't date any girls who do, or you're going to be in trouble. So, uh, I, so these new kids came and uh, we made acquaintances. We were great friends and, and as I said, they were, I was delighted they were Christians and uh, they went to the local MB church. I was a good Baptist and, uh, and imagine my horror and my shock when I was out driving with my family on a Sunday afternoon and I saw those Mennonite, same Mennonite kids who said they were Christians in a park with their church on a Sunday afternoon engaging in such reprobate activities as running races at a Sunday school picnic and engaging in a softball game. That was, that was a horror. Now just imagine my befuddlement if I could cast my mind forward a few decades later at that time and see myself married to a Mennonite girl, a ministry partner in a Mennonite church, and, and up here preaching at an MB church. Uh, inconceivable. Who said that? Was it Venizzi in, in um, Princess Bride? Talk about cognitive dissonance. But a disagreement over a softball game on a Sunday is small potatoes compared to the disagreement we're going to be looking at today in today's text. This was disagreement over the most important question that any Christian could face, anybody could face. How can we be saved? And so I want you, as we work through this passage, I want you to take away three things. This is what I want you to remember. Number one, the dispute. What was it? How are we saved? Number two, the discernment process. Okay, if we have a dispute, how do we discern a way through it? How do we know the truth? And number three, the final decision. How can truth be blended to sensitivity 
with conscience. So we're going to read the passage, and I want you to see if you can pick out those three things, the dispute, disturbment, decision, as we go through it. And do my job for me so I don't have to preach. Acts 15, verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers. Unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders about this question. So, being sent on their way by the church, they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and brought great joy to all the brothers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they declared all that God had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, You know that in the early days God made a choice among you and that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. And now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they will. And the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. And after they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take, them from, uh, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written. After this, I will return, and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins, and I will restore it, that the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known of old. Therefore, Judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. But we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Let's pray. God, our Father, the creator of all things, the true source of light and wisdom, the origin 
and beginning of all that there is. As we encounter and as we meditate on your word, please open our minds and hearts to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, in our passage today, Acts 15, it's actually right in the middle of the book of Acts. In the last few chapters, we've seen an amazing event occur. We've seen the staggering growth of the church from a small trickle of about 120 people, uh, believers in Jerusalem, and it watched it fan out from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and on its way to the ends of the earth. And now, just before our passage, we are told that Paul and Barnabas have ended up in Antioch after a very, very fruitful ministry. So what did they do when they got to Antioch? Paul and Barnabas gathered the church together, and Luke says, right at the end of chapter 14, that they declared all that God had done with them and how he opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. It was an incredible time. The church was on the march, so encouraging. But now... As we transition into chapter 15, a shadow appears. A threat looms in the life of this young church. Let's pick up the opposition in verse 1. Follow along with me um, in your Bibles or the text will be up here. But some men came down from Judea. Now remember that Paul and Barnabas were in which town? Antioch. So Judea is uh, in the Jerusalem area, and it's about 400 kilometers. So they've made a long trip, and they've got a message. And they were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised, according to the custom of Moses, you, listen to the word, cannot be saved. So who are these men teaching the gospel of circumcision? Well, they could have been well-meaning brothers who uh, were in error, or they could have been infiltrators or spies. In any case, they insisted that faith in Jesus was not enough. To be truly saved, you had to be circumcised. And I'm sure that that really got the attention of the new male Gentile believers. But their demands, it says, trigger a vigorous debate. Follow in verse 2. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them. Now, this is more than a debate. They use the term dissension. And when this term dissension is used in other passages of Scripture, it actually can refer to a riot. I mean, this disagreement is getting hot. So, in verse 2, Paul and Barnabas are appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and the elders to consider this question. So, They get down to Jerusalem, take their multi-day journey, and in verse 5, it says, But some believers who belong to the party of the Pharisees rose up and said... Now, we're given a little more information. These people who are going to raise some objections are from the party of the Pharisees. We know who the Pharisees are. We're not sure what the party of the Pharisees mean, but that was their orientation. And they said... It is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. So they're demanding much more than just circumcision. You know how many laws were in the Old Testament? There's about like 613. And then the Pharisees, of course, as you probably know, had multiplied those laws into thousands, tens of thousands more. So this is a heavy load to put on new believers. And notice they're absolutely emphatic, um, absolute language. 
It is necessary, they're saying. They must be ordered to keep the law. People in verse 1 say that they cannot be saved without circumcision. (sighs) There is no compromise here. So after all of this growth, this progress, the church now faces a crisis. It's a theological crisis of disunity, dissension, factionalism. The line is drawn in the sand and east is east, west is west, and never the twain will, can meet when it comes to agreeing on how we should be saved. So what do we do? When we have a dispute, we try to resolve it. And this brings us to our second point. And this is the one we're going to spend most of the time on. We're going to follow the discernment process. When you have a dispute, you try to discern, you try to come up with a, a, a solution. So let's look at the discernment process and how do we know, how do we figure out what the truth is? Well, in verse 6, we are told that the apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. Now, how should they proceed to consider this matter? Well, I'm going to do something a little bit different. Um, Instead of giving the application before, I'm going to give it Uh, uh, sorry, after the text. I'm going to give it before. I'm going to get you to do a little thought experiment. And I want you to, uh, for contrast purposes, to think, instead of using biblical categories and teachings to solve this problem, what if we were to use the wisdom of our age to solve this standoff between the Pharisees and the apostles in our passage? What kind of advice would we get now, this is really important because this is, this is the ways of thinking that your kids are going to face in school, in university, and it's all around us. So I think it's for contrast purposes, we need to consider this. So a 20th century advisor might suggest that we solve this problem with cultural relativism. Now, we have the demands of diversity. We've got plural, religious pluralism, and this requires that we let the Gentiles be the Gentiles and the Jews be the Jews. Let's have separate theologies for each. We cannot impose the standards of the Jews on the Gentiles or the standards of the Gentiles on the Jews. Now, you may be thinking, hmm, cultural relativism, hmm, that's not really that relevant. But I was really shocked um, just a few days ago to read that in the United States... A big, huge survey was done on born-again Christians. And a full 70% of them believed that there are other paths to God other than Jesus. I was, I was quite alarmed at that. And that was a huge, huge number of, of church-going uh, born-again Christians. So a 20th century advisor might say, solve the problem with cultural relativism. Let each be who they are and, uh, and have separate theologies, other paths to God and salvation. A second strategy might be to resolve this disagreement through social coercion, through media manipulation. It's a huge problem in our society. What we do is we let the elites decide what they want and to manipulate this vast social network that we have called the internet, we tinker with the algorithms in the search engines to eliminate controversial content. We cancel the social media accounts of those who have unapproved opinions. We threaten them. They demand they be fired. And, uh, and if, if you're interested more on this, research the uh, ominous social credit system that uh, some authoritarian countries are developing to control their populations and export. It's crazy. Now, 
another another example of the power of this social cons, uh, this power the power of this uh, social coercion is a psychology experiment called the ash experiment every parent should know about the ash experiment ever heard of that it shows how susceptible most people are to social pressure in the experiment and they use these lines here they put seven actors in a room and one person that doesn't know he's in the presence of actors. And then they ask, which line A, B, C is the same length as the line on the left? Which is it? It's C. But the actors are instructed as they go around the circle to insist that one of the others, either A or B, is the same line as the one on the left. And they just absolutely insist. They, so they no. A is the same line as the one on the left. And they go around. And then finally, the experimental subject is told to give his opinion. And what do you think happened? <laughs> Only 25% out of all of the people that went through this would believe their eyes and say that C was the right answer. A full 75% disbelieved their eyes and went along in either more or less with what other people said. Isn't that, that just shows you the power of, uh, of social pressure. And you add to that the uh, mix of uh, internet social media and, uh, and uh, you, you, have, you have the real, real ability to control people. So besides cultural relativism or media coercion, a third modern strategy to, um, to uh, resolve this dispute would be intersectionality analysis. Have you ever heard of that term? It's everywhere. What, what you would do is you would categorize the early church into a whole range of identity groups. And you would assess and then compare the Jew and the Gentile groups and rank them according to various kinds of privileges that they had and marginalizations that each face. Assess the hierarchy of oppression in the groups in play. Who are the dominant oppressors in these groups? Who are those who are getting oppressed? Then, those at the bottom end should get their voices amplified and have their lived experience accepted unquestionably as the truth. So the dispute should go in favor of the mar marginalized. And, uh, and uh, so these three ways of settling disputes in the spirit of our age are, are everywhere. Well, it's no surprise that the apostles and the elders' approach was very different from our popular modern techniques of cultural, cultural relativism, coercion, and intersectionality. Let's go to verse 6. The apostles and the elders were gathered together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and started to speak. So the discernment process now begins with Peter. And up until now, the dissension and debate has generated a lot of heat, but now the friction bursts into the flame of the light of illumination. And instead of the slippery arbitrariness of cultural relativism, Peter fixes his argument on the objective, absolute, unchanging, eternal gospel that applies to all people at all times. 
And under the Holy Spirit's guidance, Peter adjudicates, discerns this dispute by using the gospel as his reference point, as his fixed standard. Ever heard of the term the Archimedean point? It's the fixed standard. Now, in this church, I'm, I'm amazed at the construction skills of, uh, of uh, so many of you. Uh, before the pandemic, we had a little problem when we were, the setup crew I was on wheeled in one of the big con- heavy containers and a wheel fell off. And, um, and I'm thinking in my small, useless construction brain, well, I could run home and get a hammer and a nail. But before I even thought that, immediate, it was like an indie pit crew. There were tools appeared and drills and screws. Justin is lying down with a grinder and fixing underneath this, uh, this container. And before you could snap your fingers, it was fixed. And, uh, and uh, after, after we came back from the pandemic, I noticed there's no wheels on the containers. And they, they look like $500 Michelin radials. They're beautiful. And when you, when you push it, it's like, it's like driving a Bentley. It just, oh, goes so smoothly. The construction skills of people in this church are absolutely awesome. Well, so those of you who are in construction know the importance of a fixed standard. How do you know that the wall is vertically straight? You use a fixed standard of a, of a plumb line. How do you know if a window is perfectly evenly horizontally? Well, you use a level. How do you know how long a board is? You use the agreed-upon fixed standard of an inch or a meter. And how do you know if you're saved? You use the fixed standard of the gospel. This is what Peter is saying. Look how he begins his speech. Let's follow his argument in verse 7. Brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and, by, and believe. What's he talking about when he says, by my mouth? Well, he's referring to how God used him to extend the gospel back in Acts 10 to the Roman centurion. What was his name? Cornelius. This is the third time this event with Cornelius is being uh, referred to in Acts. And Peter is saying that he was the chosen instrument to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. So Peter was the instrument, but notice as we read, start in verse 8, notice the emphasis he puts on God's initiative as the gospel goes into the Gentiles. Verse 8, And God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them, that's the Gentiles, by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. Verse 9, And he made no distinction between us and them, having cleansed their heart by faith. He made no distinction between the Gentiles and the Jews, having cleansed their heart by faith. So what is this no distinction? It's this this commonality that all humanity shares. Verse 11, but we believe, and here is the core, the most clear uh, statement of the gospel up until this point, 
in the history of the church, verse 11, but we believe that we will be saved. Here's the discerning judgment. Not through circumcision. Not through keeping the Jewish law, but through the grace of the Lord Jesus, just as they, the Gentiles, will. This is a huge breakthrough. Remember when Peter talked to Cornelius up to this point? He said, you, Cornelius, know how unlawful it is. Imagine this, how unlawful it is. It's illegal for a Jew to associate, associate with or visit anyone from another nation. Remember the surprise of the Samaritan woman when Jesus would talk to her. This is the great discernment. No distinctions. Now suddenly, when it comes to salvation, all of the ways that humans divide themselves, all of the categories, all of the pigeonholes, economic class, status, race, ethnicity, gender, nationality, appearance, all take a backseat to our commonalities we share in the gospel for our salvation. We have a common father. Ephesians 1 says that he chose us from before the foundation of the world. We have a common created status. Every human being is made in the image of God. Every human being is an image bearer and therefore infinitely precious of equally great value and worth. We have a common ancestor, Adam. Yes, we shared in Adam's physical life, but we equally share in his sin which requires a common salvation in Christ. Again, in Ephesians 1, Christ in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We have, an, we have an in, a common indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Again, Ephesians 1, in whom we were sealed, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Or in the words of Ephesians 4, there is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, and one Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Well, sure, there's a place for different national, tribal identities, different people groups and language group identities. Revelation tells us that we're all going to be standing before the same throne, before the same Lamb of God, clothed in white robes. But those identities, and this is a massive breakthrough in the mind of Peter, those identities have nothing to do with how we are saved, as these Pharisees insist. Our new identity is in Christ, and we have been baptized into Christ and we have taken on Christ. And Paul says, therefore, in Galatians chapter 3, that there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male or female, for you are all one in Christ. That was a huge breakthrough a smashing of all of the categories that Peter up till now had. But in our own age, 
do you see the power of the gospel, the potency of the gospel to overcome the divisions and heal the deepest rifts that are tearing our society apart in our own times? I, I, I could take you through a, a journey in history. Don't get me started. Don't get me started. But I could show you how these truths came into uh, the minds of some of the great thinkers and led to constitutions and laws that emphasize for the first time in human history the equality of everybody in a society. I better stop there. So Peter's speech was the first part of the discernment process as the apostles settled this dispute. And with this speech, Peter who was showing why Jesus said that he was an important rock in the church. This Peter, this foundation stone in the, in the beginning of the church, foundation stone in God's temple, makes his final appearance in the book of Acts. So now we move on to verse 12, and Paul and Barnabas speak now. Verse 12, it says, And all of the assembly fell silent, hushed, that shows respect. It shows, it shows, it shows that, that they're listening to each other. Disagreement, I don't know about you, but some of the best wisdom that I've ever had or learned or acquired has come from disagreement in a climate of respect. It's powerful. Continuing with verse 12. And the, all the assembly fell silent and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. There have been innumerable religions, religious claims. How many belief systems are there? History and in the world, thousands. How do you know this gospel this Archimedean point, this fixed standard that Peter is talking about is true. Paul and Barnabas give the evidence through the confirming, through the authenticating, through the substantiating, the validating, the verification of the signs of wonders that God provided to show that this gospel is true. So after... Peter, Paul, and Barnabas exercise their discernment to settle this dispute. James stands up. Verse 13. After they finished speaking, James replied, Brothers, listen to me. Simeon, now isn't it interesting how he calls Peter Simeon? Do you know why? Because Simeon was Peter's Jewish name. So the Jews there are going to go, oh, all right, he's, uh, I understand what he's doing here. He's talking about a Jew. Simeon has related how God first visited the Gentiles to take, them from, to take from them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophet agree just as it is written. Now he's going to quote a section largely from Amos. But notice what he's doing. We have the fixed standard of the gospel. Paul and Barnabas provide verification from signs and wonders. And now... James is providing verification for this gospel for the inclusion of the Gentiles from the Old Testament. And this is really interesting. And if you know what the Septuagint is? The Septuagint is a translation of the Old Testament that was done in the Greek. 
very, very important uh, translation so that, so, that, so that people who could read the Greek language could read the Old Testament. James here quotes from the Septuagint. So now the Gentiles, the Greeks, are going, oh, oh, he's trying to relate to me. See, so he's, he's subtly bridging the gap between uh, Simeon, a Jewish name, and the Septuagint, a, a, a Greek uh, rendition of the Old Testament. And this is what Amos said. Oh my goodness. <laughs> we, this, this passage here requires at least two sermons, but we're just going to have to read it. Uh, okay. <sighs> Jonathan, you're going to have to explain it to us. Verse 16. Here is the quote, largely from Amos, but some other passages as well. After this, I will return and I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. That the remnant of mankind may seek the Lord. And here it is. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from old. There it is fixed standard of the gospel in the discernment process. Signs and wonders to authenticate. The Old Testament providing evidence that Peter's gospel is, is, is right and God-supported. Three cords woven together makes a pretty strong rope. So the case is closed, right? Not quite. Well, yes. Yes, it is true. We've shown here that Old Testament law, keeping Old Testament law has nothing to do with contributing to our salvation. But that's not the end of the story. James now issues a decision, third point here, to wrap up the matter. And this gets really interesting. Really interesting. The decision. How can truth the truth that salvation is by faith alone, be blended with sensitivity to conscience. Now to the, to the Gentile Christians, he gives four directives. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And they're going, oh, shoo, <laughs> no circumcision, no 613 laws, no thousands of laws from the Pharisees. That's good. But in my judgment is that, they, that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, verse 20, but should write to them two, four things. Abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. Even though it's been settled that salvation is by faith alone, there is still a need to be sensitive to church members who now are meeting together from radically, radically different cultural backgrounds like end of the spectrum. You just can't imagine how different a Roman meeting with an Orthodox Jew would be in the same church. Very different cultural backgrounds. And, these, and you've got to be sensitive to, to those whose consciences can be violated by your freedom. Your freedom in Christ if, if can, can be like a sword and can crush people who are uh, 
who have, whose consciences um, follow certain beliefs. And yeah, you also need to be careful about some of the things that are happening in your own culture. Like for example, the reference to sexual immorality almost certainly refers to the temple prostitution that was a part of, uh, of, of the pagan worship at that time. So beware of the things in your own culture that are, are really dangerous, but be sensitive to some of, the, uh, of, of, of these um, uh, Jewish consciences as well. So your freedom in Christ, if you're not careful, can really, really hurt other believers who are coming from a whole, totally different conscience and totally different background for you. Paul actually extends this in 1 Corinthians 8. Notice what he says. He says, However, not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol. Talking about Christians here. And their conscience, being weak, is defiled. Food will not commend us to God, he goes on. We are no worse off if we do not eat, and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. Another part of that passage, he says, Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. Idols are nothing. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, notice this, if anyone loves God, he is known by God. There's a two-way relationship with your love of God. When you express your love for God in the way that our worship team has led us this morning, it's not just you expressing that worship. It's a two-way street. Paul is saying here, if you love God, you are known by God. So, a perfect example staring at us in plain sight of uh, acquiring the wisdom to appropriate, uh, appropriately blend truth with sensitivity to other believers' consciences. It's a wide, wide range of responses in the churches to the pandemic, right? Think, think of, of, of what churches have had to wrestle with as we try to figure out how we're going to respond. Think of the wide range of opinions. On one hand, we've got to obey those who, who are in authority. And on the other hand, we know that the Bible requires and insists that we don't give up meeting together. On the one hand, we want to protect those who are weak health-wise, not put them at risk. On the other hand, we want to be an honorable witness before the society around us and then throw in different views on masks and vaccinations and people are going to land in all sorts of different places all over the map. If you talk to our pastors, uh, they will tell you that the last 18 or so months have been the most difficult in their time of ministry. And yet, they will also tell you 
how grateful they are for the patience of so many who have, that so many have shown as the leadership has tried to navigate and make judgment calls through these difficult issues that may not align to the best lights of some, and yet there's an expression of graciousness and tolerance. So we've looked at the dispute over salvation between the apostles and the Pharisees. We've unpacked the principles used by the apostles to discern how to respond to this deep division of salvation. We saw how Peter measured everything by the gospel as his standard of reference. We've seen how Paul and Barnabas and James provided evidence for the full inclusion of the Gentiles into God's plan. We've compared, we've contrasted this apostolic pattern of decision-making with 21st century preferences for cultural relativism, social media coercion, and intersectionality. I want to finish off as we think about disagreements. When you disagree with somebody, especially on a topic that is really important to you, don't use an expression, don't straw man their opinions, but steal man. What do I mean by that? Well, let me give you an example. Uh, I was part of a church where some people really believed that when we serve communion, we should be using real wine. And, uh, and there was one member in particular who vigorously disagreed about that. He said, no, no, we should continue on with our practice of using grape juice. We should. And when people talked about his opinion, they straw-manned him. What, what straw-man means, the opinion of those that disagree with you in the worst possible light. Oh, Brother Gloomy Gus, I'm just making this name up. Brother Gloomy Gus is afflicted with legalism. He needs to learn grace. After all, Jesus drank wine. And they, they presented his motivations in the worst, worst possible way. Well, it turned out that this brother in Christ had a very, very good reason because he was aware through friends who had shared intimate details that, some, uh, that at least two people in the church were recovering alcoholics. And one of the reasons they came to this church was that, that just they could not, their consciences, their, their willpower, their resolve couldn't, was threatened by taking a sip of real wine. And this dear brother in Christ was trying to protect his brethren, but not say why to, to, to you know, get the gossip chain going, that, oh, they were alcoholics. So when you disagree with somebody, when, when you dialogue, present their opinions in the best possible light and listen, listen carefully. And, uh, and, and I believe that if we can do that, this happy place that we call Promontory, I just love being here, as Jonathan said earlier, it's just wonderful to be here and back again. We'll thrive in this happy community. We'll continue and 
to the time where we influence each other and share our gifts with each other to present ourselves before God finally in heaven. Let's pray. Lord, your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As the book of James says, may we humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. May the things you have revealed and the thoughts we have shared dwell in our hearts and stir us to action. We ask this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen.